I got up on the subway and gave my seat to a woman who was holding onto a strap. She was rather surprised. And she said to me, why did you do that? <laughs> well, I looked at her and I saw that she was absolutely incapable of understanding a spiritual reason. And I said to her, well, madam, I tell you, ever since I was a little boy, I've had an infinite respect for a woman with a strap in her hand. You are a loyal son of the church, the Holy Father told Bishop Sheen. You have spoken and written well of our Lord. People of all faiths recognized Bishop Sheen as one of the greatest communicators of the 20th century. He was born in El Paso, Illinois. As a young boy, he knew he wanted to be a priest. He served as an altar boy at St. Mary's Cathedral in Peoria, Illinois. His education and his debating skills at St. Viator College taught him a major lesson he used throughout his life, his unique ability of being natural and at ease in front of an audience. He was ordained in 1919 and went on to become one of the best known and greatly loved priests in our church history. When people watched him on television, they waited for his goodbye, his blessing, God love you. It gave them joy and hope, and it continues to do the same for us. An angel is a guardian. Every person in the world has a guardian angel. And why? Well, because every individual is worth more than the entire universe. As our blessed Lord said, what doth it profit a man if he gain the world? And lose his soul. Below us, there are only species. And nature is careful not to preserve individuals, but just species. But when you come to man, each one is of sovereign worth. And God has given to each a guardian. And hence our Lord said of the guardian angels of children, that the angels of children always see the face of the Father in heaven. What is it that protects children when they fall out of second and third story windows? One wonders, honestly, how a child ever gets to be a man. And you think of the pots and pans they can pull off on themselves and all the harm that they can get into and the fires they start. It's a good thing the good Lord has given them, guardian angels. And parents ought to tell their children about the guardian angels and pray to them in order that the children may be safe during the day. And then even in times of war, A Jewish soldier told me this story. During a battle, he was with four men in a trench. And it seems as if this particular shell that hit killed the four men. He alone was saved. He said he heard a voice saying to him, get out of this trench. And he crawled on his stomach across the mud to another shell hole. And as he did, the shell exploded in the one that he left. In the second hole, the second time, he heard the voice, and he left that, and the shell exploded there, and that continued five times. And the Jew afterwards told me, for the first time in my life, I began to feel the protection of God through an angel. He said, I'd read about angels in the New Testament, but I'd never thought of them. And then flying. Some people are afraid to fly. You know, I think that's a terrible insult against God to be afraid to fly. Because people are practically saying to the good Lord, as long as I'm here on this earth, you can't touch me. I'm safe. So they are saying to the good Lord, you are a coward. You may be lurking behind one of those white clouds and you'll come out and stop the propeller and send me down to the earth. Every time, every day of my life, I always say a prayer to St. Raphael. He's mentioned in the Old Testament, as you know, as the one who traveled with Tobias. I pray every day to St. Raphael to guard me when I fly and when I travel. 
TWA, travel with angels. <laughs> that, that, that commercial ought to get me a free trip to Newark sometime. <laughs> And the good Lord has turned the beautiful side of the clouds to himself, and it's really wonderful to get up above the clouds and glorify God. We might do, do it here on earth. And therefore, may I say to you, the reason we do not think of angels is because we do not think of God. Just as soon as we begin to think of God, or rather cease thinking of ourselves as tiny little gods, then we'll begin to believe in spirits that are wiser than ourselves can instruct and guard us. There may be a public library around the corner from you, but you do not use it and therefore are not wise. There may be uranium in your backyard, but you do not use a Geiger counter and you are not wealthy. There may be a Bible on your shelf but you're not reading it, and therefore lacking spiritual inspiration. And there are angels near you to guide you and protect you, did you but invoke them. It is not later than we think. <coughs> it is a bigger world than we think. Stir your soul, start a wing, and you will discover it to be the wing of an angel of God. The oceans that touch America have many stories. One is the crossing of the pilgrims from England to America in a small sailing ship called the Mayflower. These people sought a place where they could worship as they wished. They settled at Plymouth in Massachusetts. Winter had just set in. Their lives became filled with hardships. Half their company died. The others worked through the loneliness of winter until the warm sun of the New England springtime gave them new strength. They prayed, and their loneliness melted with the winter snows. Friends, in a certain city, a politician was running for office and he advertised for volunteer workers. There were so many young women appeared for the job as volunteers that there was a near riot. Were they interested in politics? No, the first question they asked was, how many men have appeared? They were part of the lonely young women of this great city. And then I know of an old woman who stays up every night until 12 o'clock to hear the announcer say, we are now signing off, good night, and have a good sleep. <laughs> that relieves her of her loneliness. There was really and truly a woman wrote to me and told me that uh, my program was the only one to which her cat ever listened. <laughs> so our subject tonight has to do, to some extent, with loneliness. So what's this, what's the cause of this loneliness? What are we looking for? Well, we say we're looking for God, yes. But then I know what you will answer. What does God know about loneliness? Now that's a good question. That's a good question. What does he know about loneliness? Does he know anything about the loneliness, for example, of a babe in Afghanistan who has no better home than just straw? Does God know anything about the loneliness of a mother who has to gather up a child in order to escape a dictator and fly halfway across Africa? Does God know anything about the loneliness of a man that's born on the wrong side of the tracks? 
who's isolated socially from people simply because his hands are calloused with common labor and has denied decent society. Sure, does God know anything about that kind of loneliness, for example, in which one is expelled from a city, disowned by one's own people? Does he know anything about the loneliness of being deserted by friends? Does he even know anything about the loneliness of feeling doubts, doubts even about religion, doubts even which one cries out, why hast thou abandoned me? Does God know anything about these things? Yes, those are good questions. Now suppose that there was a figure that came into all of this loneliness and so immersed himself in it that he would not immunize himself from it, would not cut himself off from it. Would you, for example, be the only one on the battlefield that was whole and not help any of the wounded? And so if there was a figure that came into this world of ours and refused to isolate himself from loneliness and felt it so much that blood poured out from his body, felt loneliness so much that as if all the robberies of the world were thrust into his hands, as if he himself were guilty, that felt all loathsome carnality so much that his flesh was hanging from him like purple rags. Suppose someone came into this world and went into all of this loneliness, took it all, and was not overcome by it, but conquered it all. Then what? Then I may be lonely every now and then, but I'll not be overcome by it. Then I have a captain, kind of a captain, who did presses not a button in heaven from a celestial command. But I have a captain who stumbled to a throne. You are a loyal son of the church, the Holy Father told Bishop Sheen. You have spoken and written well of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Joseph Campanella. Bishop Sheen's spoken and written words are a treasure for God's people of all religions. The diversity of his words reflect his certainty that it is not a unity of religion that we plead for, but a unity of religious people. We may not be able to meet in the same pew, but we can meet on our knees in the light from the shadow of the cross. Here now, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, you heard the subject, our two wars, but before I get into that subject, let me tell you about another war. A little boy went to religion class, and when he came home, his mother said to him, what did you learn today at Sunday school? He said, I learned about the war of Moses and the Egyptians. Well, what happened? Well, he said, the Egyptians, he said, were pursuing Moses and the Israelites. So Moses telephoned to his engineers. His engineers laid pontoon bridges all across the Red Sea. When the bridges were laid, the aircraft saw the tanks of the Egyptians coming on the other side of the Red Sea. Moses telephoned the airfield, radioed the jets to bomb all of these tanks and the army, which they did. Then when the Israelites were across, then they bombed the pontoon bridges and Moses and the army were safe. Mother said, is, is that what they told you in Sunday school? No, he said it isn't. But he says, if I told you what they really said, you wouldn't have believed me. <laughs> well, our country is something that's very dear to your heart and to mine. I wonder if it's dear enough.
No, the Greeks had the virtue of pietas, which was love of country. And love of country was one of three forms of love. One was love of God, and the other was love of neighbor, and the other was love of country. Have you ever noticed that all three pass out together? And there's no longer respect for parents, and no longer a sense of of divine relationship to a heavenly father, there's no more patriotism. And because the country means so much to us, and as Lincoln said, we've been blessed as no other country in the history of the world has ever been blessed. It makes one feel rather tragic that we are in two wars, two wars. One of the wars that we're in is what might be called the protracted war. The other war we are in is the insurgent war. The protracted war is one that we fight outside our country. The insurgent war is the one that is fought inside. The reason I mentioned both at the beginning is because I gave you the title of two wars. I'm going to leave it for a minute. I will come back to it. But I want to tell you about a very false concept of war that we still have in the United States. The concept of war that we have now is what might be called the theory of the intermittent war. This is a 19th century inheritance. One might almost say it is something that has been inherited from the centuries. But our philosophy of war at the present time is that war is not constant. That war is something that disturbs relatively long periods of peace. Secondly, our false theory of war is that every war must end in victory. Because we have the theory of intermittent war, if you pick up an American history, you will find, for example, our history in terms of a war, say Civil War, World War I, with the dates after it, say, World War I, 1914, 1918, and so forth, World War II, and any other war that we happen to be in. You see, it's intermittent. It is not a continuous thing. Now, I wish to suggest to you, for a better understanding of our country, that this theory of an intermittent war can cause us a great deal of trouble. We must understand what is new in the world. And what is new is something that was introduced in 1917 by the Communist Revolution. The Communist Revolution introduced into the world the notion did you ever figure out how my angel always... I never tell my angel when to clean a blackboard. Ever notice that? He always knows when to clean it, and if I don't want it cleaned, see, he doesn't clean it. Uh, now, sometimes I'll walk away, and he doesn't clean the blackboard. Not because I walk away. Funny, isn't it? <laughs> when the Constitution grants rights and liberties to the citizens, it must never be assumed that the people have no other rights 
than those granted to them by the Constitution. In other words, simply because we have certain rights, we must never think that we have them because they're in the Constitution. No, we have them because they're divinely given. Winter brings a holiday we call President's Day, in which we honor George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and all the other presidents who have lived in this historic White House in Washington, D.C., our place of national pride and great beauty, especially after winter, when the cherry blossoms bloom. The world is painted with pink day and night, and in the dawn's early light, our star-spangled banner, Old Glory's red, white, and blue, still waves over a land where we say, in God we trust. Friends, the few minutes before television program begins are always moments of tension. There's a countdown and one is always waiting for the cue to start. It reminds me of a woman in an Arkansas town, a very small town. She was trying to crash the society in this village, but her husband was not very social, so she kept him upstairs with instructions that he was not to come down to the tea under any circumstances. She invited in the ladies and she was charming them at tea and uh, her efforts were just about crowned with success when a voice was heard from upstairs. It was the husband. And he was saying, Ma, there are only clean towels in the bathroom. Is it all right to start one? <laughs> so we get the cue and start a television show. And this one is about America. Sometimes the Europeans make great fun of us. This really and truly happened to a friend of mine who was studying in Switzerland. And it seems this American had gone over for his first visit to Europe. And my friend in Switzerland, who was an American, said, well, how do you like Europe? Oh, he said, I don't like anything about it. He said, they're not up to date. They do not have the latest gadgets. Television, not in the hotel rooms. And then he said, buildings are old. He said, there are churches here that are over a thousand years old. And then, dirty, I don't find anything beautiful here. My American friend said, well, don't you think Switzerland is beautiful? He said, take away the scenery and what have you got left? There are so many things that we take for granted now that could not be taken for granted some years ago. For example, our next meal. When the pioneers had to go out to sh shoot it. Water. But now we take everything for granted. Light, heat, transportation, television, trains and planes. We take our friends for granted take people for granted, and we take America for granted. And there is going on at the present time a decline in patriotism. And in order to revive it, let me tell you some of the glories of America. I'm going to mention three. The first is the origin of our rights and liberties. Secondly, the great value that we put upon the human person. And then thirdly, what America's done for the world. First of all, the source of our rights and liberties. Where, for example, do I get the right of free speech here? Whence comes freedom of press, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion? There's an audience here in this studio. They are an assembly. Whence comes the right of assembly? Don't you think that our founding fathers had to ask themselves these questions? Well, where do our rights come from? 
and liberties as well. From the state, if the state gave our rights, the state could take them away. Does the federal government give us our rights and liberties? If the federal government gave us our rights and liberties, the federal government could take them away. On March the 15th, we feel it takes almost everything else away and might take away our rights and liberties. Our founding fathers had to ask themselves these questions and they searched about for some basis and some ground of our liberties. And they looked to one theory that was being held in Europe at the time. Namely, that rights and liberties come from Parliament. Founding fathers rejected that. Then they considered another theory. That they come from the will of the majority. And rightly, they refused to accept that view. They wanted a country in which rights and liberties did not come from the will of the majority in an election. They wanted a country in which the majority would be the custodian of minority rights. And they finally found the source of rights and liberties and they set it down in the second paragraph of our Declaration of Independence. It is a self-evident principle that the Creator, the Creator, has endowed man with certain unalienable rights, among which are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, our rights come from God. Love is a garden, a tapestry of color that gives a radiance to our imagination. We delight in the flight of a butterfly who stops for a brief moment to open his wings on the petals of a rose. In the garden of our own lives, we pray that the leaves will always dance gracefully in the gentle breeze, that whisper which is the breath of God. On the 50th anniversary of his priesthood, Bishop Sheen wrote these lines. As I work under the love of two hearts, one sacred and the other immaculate, the road, I shall follow it. The fun, I shall forget it. The cup, I shall empty it. The pain, I shall conceal it. The truth, I shall be told it. The end, I shall endure it. Now Bishop Sheen and... Love is a Garden. Friends, you've heard the title, Love is a Garden. So this telecast has something to do about love. It will touch maybe on the fine points of love, particularly married love. And it reminds one of extremes. One extreme about marriage is the story of, uh, of Adam out walk in the garden, out walking after the fall of the garden of paradise. And he had his two boys with him, one on either side. And they passed by the wreck and ruin of the beautiful garden of paradise. And Adam looked in, pulled the boys to himself. He says, boys, that's where your mother ate us out of house and home. <laughs> On that bad side of it, too, is the story of the wife who went in to get a, a collar for her husband. And the clerk said, what size? She said, about that size. You didn't get that, did you? <laughs> and uh, then on, on the more pleasing aspect of marriage, President Harding was once asked, what, at what age do you think women are most beautiful? He said, the age of my wife. And here I'm going to read for you perhaps a poem that you know. 
Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem to her husband. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. We're feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need. By sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to youth, put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears, all my life, and if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. The winds lift the seabirds above the tides ebb and flow. Sunward they fly on silver wings above God's creation, this miracle place of our journey. The evensong begins in a floating sense of light. Its afterglow glimmers on the ocean's golden waves, waves which have crossed time and distance to break in patterns on the shore of your journey. They are the sea's motion, ever constant like the simple faith of our childhood. Let the little children come unto me. In this moment of life, there is a struggle in the human heart that only the soul and God know about. But we can soar on wings of light above the silence into the sun-split clouds, alone in prayer with God. Today, Bishop Sheen tells us how to keep people tuned in with empathy, along with being interested in them as people. Friends, I must tell you about two letters that I received about the way I conclude the program. Uh, one letter told me that this woman had a parakeet which she trained to say, bye now and God love you. I have a dim suspicion that she trained the parakeet to say that to teach people when to go home. And there was another woman, a mother, who told me that her son aged about four, was brought to Mass every Sunday, and after the priest left the altar, went into the sacristy, uh, he would whisper to his mother, Mommy, Mass isn't over. Yes, it is. Four Sundays, he said that. The fifth Sunday, he could not stand it any longer. He knew how it should end. Everything should end. He stood up on the pew, turned to the congregation, says, Bye now. God love you. <laughs> this, uh, this telecast, you know, is... Uh, he always tunes me out. It's not about people who are disagreeable, not that class that belonged to the Italian barber that I know of. A friend went into his barber shop and announced to this Italian barber that he'd want a trip to Rome. Yes, how are you going? He says, TWA. Oh, he says, don't take that line. He said, the engines always conk out, never arise on time. Where are you going to stay when you get to Rome? He said, the Excelsior Hotel. He said, it's a flea blag, don't go there. Where are you going to eat? Chasery Restaurant. Oh, they put potassium of cyanide in the food. What else are you going to do? He said, I'm going to have an audience with the Pope. Oh, he said, there'll be 20,000 screaming Italians, you'll never get near the man. Six weeks later, he came back. How was the trip? Asked the Italian barber. Fine, he said. Travel TWA, just as Bishop Sheen said, travel with angels, perfect flight. Excelsior Hotel, 
excellent, fine food, the Chesery restaurant, and I had a private audience with the Holy Father. You did? What did the Pope say? He said, where did you get that awful haircut? <laughs> now this expression, he always cuts me out and off, is taken from radio and television. One hears it so often today. I heard a, a professor in a school of medicine use it. He said that as soon as he begins to talk to the medical students about the necessity of caring more for patients than just for disease, he said, hey, tune me up. I heard a mother say it of her daughter. I said to her, why do you stay out every night until 3 o'clock in the morning? She doesn't answer me. She tunes me out. Fathers have said exactly the same thing about, about their sons. They just don't listen. In, in many people today, there seems to be a knob that's been taken off a television radio set, and they just simply tune people out. So that there's a kind of a, a brokenness in human relationships. Ages and classes and groups and so forth. So the problem is, how can we tune people in? Now, there is a psychological answer. But I'm going to show later on that that is not quite adequate because I'm going to be concerned with really difficult and almost impossible cases. But what is the psychological answer to tuning people in? Well, it is, it is uh, establishing by the psychologist or psychiatrist with his client a rapport, developing a sympathy and an empathy between the helper and the one helped. Whenever we love, we give power. Isn't that a peculiar thing? Wherever there's love, there's almost a surrender. So there exists on this earth and so many places in this earth that it is a shame the press does not print those who keep the commandments as well as those who break the commandments. But somewhere on this earth there is a love that absorbs evil. It did not come from evolution. I think that that love that absorbs evil exists it in someone who in the face of deafness would sigh. Someone who in the face of death would shed a tear. And someone in the face even of the corruption of a culture, overlooking a city and a culture, might also weep. Somewhere there had to be someone who loved so much that he was helpless, helpless. So helpless, more helpless than the mother before the infant. So helpless that nails could be pinioned against his hands and against his feet. Somewhere there had to be an open end. Somewhere there had to be an open heart. An open heart. And on one cheek, there had to be gathered up all of the sorrows of the world so that down that cheek might flow just one tear. This is where such love comes from. It is from heaven. It is from God.
Autumn brings us a special day when we thank the men and women of America, both living and dead, who are veterans, who have served this country in war and peace with amazing grace. Their service will never be forgotten nor taken for granted. As we pass into a new century, let us forever repeat the three words that have kept us strong. God bless America. When we go back to the life of our blessed Lord, we find that the first words of his public life were, come, come to me. And the last words of his public life were, go, go into the world. Come first to get an idea, strength, inspiration, motivation, then action, dynamism, fluidity, serving the secular world. This is the way the two should be kept together. When they are kept together, what do you find? I think you get modern saints. I'm going to talk about modern saints, not plaster saints. Not canonized saints. Saints that are uncanonized, but rather those whom the world, not whom religion, those whom the world regards as saints. And their common characteristic is this. It's a, uh, it's a phrase from Thomas Aquinas. Contemplata alias in other words, go and give to others what you have already contemplated. First the come, the idea, the contemplata, then the go, deliver it to others. Now, quite apart from any view that you may have concerning these whom I am about to mention, about their politics, their economics, their theology, or anything else, whom does the world, the world, generally regard as the four great leaders and saints. Gandhi. That's one. Two, President John F. Kennedy. Three, Pope John XXIII. And fourth, Hammershold. formerly of the United Nations. Each had a great idea. Each first came. They got some contemplata. Friends, did I ever tell you this story apropos of uh, tonight's subject? Uh, the little girl was told by her, her mother about all of the family problems. Jimmy had the mumps, and Susie has the measles, and Grandma had broken her leg, and she was told to pray, and she said, Dear God, please take care of yourself, because if anything happens to you, we'll all be in the soup. <laughs> but the subject is somewhat related to that. It's um, on God is dead. I heard of one man who was an atheist for a year, and then he gave it up because there were no holidays. <laughs> We'll try to explain to you this much-discussed subject, God is dead. Now, there are two ways in which this can be understood. God is dead. It can be understood one, one way. I don't know how I happened to write that. My angel, leave it there, angel. Uh, the name God is dead. That is one sense in which it is used. In other words, 
the name God has no significance today. The other meaning of the phrase, God is dead, is that the reality of God is dead. In other words, God himself is dead. Here it's only the name. Now, this is one of the very popular ideas today. Why is the name of God meaningless? I will give you their argument without going into the names of the philosophers. I'll not mention any of the popular American ones because, listen, their theory won't be known in 10 years from now. This telecast would outlast their theory. People of all faiths recognized Bishop Sheen as one of the greatest communicators of the 20th century. As I look back, I know very well that I have never received the punishment that I deserved. God has been easy with me. He has not laid on me burdens that were ever equal to my failures. And if we look into our own soul, I think that we will also come to that conclusion. For God speaks to us in various ways. As C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. And he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone. is heaven's loudspeaker. Unlike the ripples that are made in a brook or sea when you throw in a stone, the ripples of pain, instead of going out to distant shores, they narrow and narrow and come to a central point where there is less of the outside of the circle and more of the center. Not the ego, but the real person and the real self. And one begins to find oneself alone with God. That is what happens in pain. The one on the right saw that. And as we look at pain and those and suffering, we only wish that they could understand the mystery of it. Why does it happen? You see, I'm sure that that man on the left said, well, God is evil. That's why he said, if you're the son of God, save us. All, your, all God does anyway is cure. No. When I was a boy and had a toothache, I would always go to my grandmother because she'd give me oil of clothes. And I was afraid to go to my father because he'd take me to the dentist and he would hurt me. One day he took me to the dentist and the dentist said, you have a very grave infection in your tooth and it's spreading through your organism. And that tooth has to be pulled, and it's going to give you some pain. The dentist pulled the tooth. My father stood there, holding my hand, which really did no good at all. And then 
even though I was just a boy, I somehow reasoned that why doesn't he stop the dentist? Why does he allow him to make me suffer? And because he wanted to prevent that infection through my body. And so the Heavenly Father says to his son on the cross, you take on the sins, the infections, and all the poisons of the world. And the Father was with him, but the Father let him suffer because of the eventual good that it would do for us in the resurrection. People of all faiths recognized Bishop Fulton J. Sheen as one of the greatest communicators of the 20th century. He was born in El Paso, Illinois, in May of 1896. As a young boy, he knew he wanted to be a priest. He served as an altar boy at St. Mary's Cathedral in Peoria, Illinois. At St. Viator College, his education and debating skills taught him the skills he used throughout his life. His unique ability at being natural and at ease in front of any audience was noted early in his ministry. He was ordained in 1919 and went on to become one of the best-known and greatly loved priests in church history. He wrote 96 books and hundreds of articles and columns. He broadcast numerous radio and TV programs. People from all faiths watched him on television because he spoke to every man. They always waited with joy for his goodbye, his blessing, God love you. It continues to give us joy and memories. Bye now, and God love you. Bishop Fulton J. Sheen went to be with the Lord in December of 1979. Fulton J. Sheen, requiescat in pace. <laughs> 